So the party didn't tell about Ada Hayden that gets more awkward. <laughs> so it was actually up there. Uh, my friend Dane here was up there to propose to his now wife, Monica. And so we were trying to like block off the entrances so like nobody would like come down that way. And so I'm like hiding in the weeds up at Ada Hayden, like waiting for them to come by, like watching the like the friend finder app. And all of a sudden I see Matt and Heather and their family walk by, like I'm literally like hiding in the weeds. And I'm like, hey, Matt. <laughs> so like, this is like a week or two after the Sam's Club thing. So I'm thinking he just thinks I'm probably some like weird nutcase that hides in the weeds at Ada Hayden. So, <laughs> so with that, I'm uh, like you said, my name's Steve. I'm really, really excited to be here with all you guys this morning and just being able to open up God's word. Uh, as Matt said, I'm a CST student over at Cornerstone, which really means I'm just learning God's word better and learning how to bring God's word to God's people. So that's what we're here to do today. Uh, so I want to start off, um, if everybody can kind of jump on the magic school bus with me, I want to go back to elementary school for a minute. Um, we're going to think back to like the American Revolution. So if you remember what led up to all this and everything that kind of comes into this, there's this big conflict that's going on between the colonists and Great Britain. And eventually we have the Declaration of Independence a war that ensues afterwards where over 100,000 people lose their lives, families are torn apart, the entire landscape of America begins to change. And eventually, in this fight for freedom, Britain surrenders, and America becomes its own independent nation. So this long-fought fight for freedom that they had was won. So they're free, which is awesome. So a couple years later, George Washington is being sworn in as the first president of the, of the United States of America. You guys might not remember this part of his speech, but in his inaugural speech, he begins to talk and he says, you know, this long-fought fight for freedom that we've had and all the loss that we've had on the battlefield, we've accomplished it. And I'm so excited to announce that once again, we're going to submit back under King George III. That would be absolutely ridiculous, and that's not how the story went. So who, after having fought for freedom, would willingly walk back into a life of slavery? Nobody. But that's what we see happening in the book of Galatians here and why Paul's writing to the Galatians. If you remember in the first week, Matt began to unpack the reason of what's going on here. He says in that, in that first couple of passages of, like, you are starting to follow another gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there's this conflict that's arising. Last week, Aaron did a great job of unpacking some of the history of the sign of circumcision being the sign, the covenant sign of God's people and the history of the law and why the law was so important. But we also saw, if you remember, when Jesus was walking in Matthew 5, he says that I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill the law. So the, the law is there but it's fulfilled in Jesus, so we don't have to follow that law anymore. But that's the conflict, if you remember, of what's going on here. So if you've been reading through the book of Galatians with us, you can see Paul's emotion as he's reading, and he is just mad. And not, I got stuck behind a combine in Route 17 mad, because we all know how infuriating that can be. But he is, there is a guy trying to sell drugs to my kid, piping hot mad. He is not a guy that you want to be messing with right now because people are messing with his kids. So, so far what we've seen is Paul starts off saying, I'm Paul, the apostle, not from men, but from Jesus. He goes on and he says that 
I'm the real deal. I have brought my message to the other brothers in Jerusalem, not once, but twice, and both times they have affirmed me. And if anybody else is teaching you a different message, then damn them, let them be accursed. This is strong language coming from Paul. He's just angry in a right way because people are messing with the gospel message. So if you remember, as, as we were finishing last week, Aaron was talking about how Paul went back to Jerusalem that second time. He was once again affirmed by the apostles and the elders there. And we get into our text today. So if you want to open up to Galatians 2, starting in, in verse 11, there's this really big word at the beginning of that sentence, but. I don't know if you guys have ever started a sentence with but or used but in a sentence, but I'll give you an example of a really bad way to use this. If you're if my wife makes me a dinner and I say, oh, honey, this was really good, but, uh-oh, it's not as good as my mom makes. We're in for a bad couple of nights. So, but just negates everything else that happened before. So he's saying, I have been affirmed again by the brothers in Jerusalem, but when Cephas, Cephas is just a fancy name for Peter. I don't know why they use that. We're just going to call him Peter if they're on here, so it's a little bit easier. So, Starting in verse 11, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I just want to start off with a question. Why do we so quickly walk away from what God's plan is? This didn't start with the Galatians. This didn't start with us. You can start with Adam and Eve in the garden. If God is giving them the garden, he says, here's the plan. Don't eat of this one tree. And what do they do? They eat of that one tree. We see this in the the promise to Abraham of offspring, and they're impatient because this, this promise is not being fulfilled. So Sarah, Abraham's husband, gives her Hagar, her slave girl, and he has a kid, Ishmael, that is not of the promise. We see this again where the Israelites are unwilling to wait for Moses to come off of the mountain from him going up and having this interaction with God. And so they try to make this other God that is not a God in a golden calf. We can see it again when the Israelites don't take the promised land when they're told to. We can see it again when God tells them, don't choose a king, it's not going to go well, and then they go and pick Saul. We could go on the entire message just on giving examples of this, of us walking away from the truth. The lyrics of, come thou fount, just ring in my mind, of, let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I sing that song to my kids sometimes as we're going to bed, and every single time I just say, that's me. That's my heart that wanders. Is, is that yours too? My, my wife and I had the privilege of last month being able to celebrate our 10-year anniversary, and we were down in Mexico, and my wife is a big ocean person. I prefer the pool, but I love my wife more than pools, so I was in the ocean. And so we're in the ocean, and after a while, I look up, and I realize that we had just drifted probably about 100 yards down from the beach from where we started. And I I didn't realize it, because as you're looking out at the vastness of the ocean, you don't realize as you're slowly moving, unless your eyes go back to that point of truth, which is the unmoving shoreline. 
Or maybe an, a better example, this one hits a little closer to home. Some of you guys might be able to connect with this one. A couple of years ago, I was having that moment of I was getting ready in the morning and I was looking at myself in the mirror and I started to think, am I losing my hair? It's some kind of an uncomfortable question, but you, you begin to rationalize it away of, no, you know, I just got my hair cut recently, so it's just falling a little differently, you know, I'm just not going to... But then you, just, you keep asking that question just over and over and over. I guess he's shaking his head. He's got it. <laughs> and I realized that there's this story that I would tell of when I was five. I hit my head on the bleachers at my brother's baseball game. And long story short, I had to get stitches in my forehead. And when I used to tell this story, I would tell people, and I'd be like, look, if you look way up in my hairline, there's this like scar up there. And then I realized now when I tell the story, all I have to do is say, look in the middle of my forehead. It's right there. So when I realized I had this problem of the scar had moved below my hairline, which obviously is not what happened because the scar is not moving. And so if something is moving, it's not that fixed point of truth, that scar, but it's something else. Therefore, I'm going bald slowly. So um, I'm going to try to bring your attention back. I don't want you like sitting here staring. I can show you the scar later, but for now, let's go back to God's word. Um, But are any of us prone or are any of us not tempted to wander away. And I would say no. Let's look at Peter as an example. If you look back at the text with me for a second, in verse 12, it says, before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. This is Peter, people. You guys remember Peter? Peter is the first disciple that Jesus called. Peter is one of the the inner circle, the inner three of Jesus. Peter's the guy that when Jesus is walking on the water, Peter's so bold to say, hey, if this is really you, call me out with you. This is Peter that goes and prays with him in Gethsemane. This is Peter that in Acts 10, we see he's having this vision of the sheep being lowered down. And three different times, God tells him to kill the animals and eat, but Peter says, no, these are unclean animals. I've I follow the law. I'm not going to kill these things and eat them. It would be unclean of me to do. And God three times tells him, do not call common what I have called clean. Peter tripped over this and screwed up. What about Barnabas? That's a name that you guys might not be as familiar with. But To give you a quick history lesson on Barnabas, Barnabas is the guy that after Paul became a believer, all of the Jewish believers, all the the people that had been following Christ are scared to death of Paul because up until that point, he'd been trying to kill Christians. So when he eventually comes to Jerusalem, it's Barnabas that goes with Paul, brings him to the apostles, brings him to the leaders and says, no, this guy is the real deal. I've been with him. He's it. Barnabas is the guy that they send out with Paul on that first missionary journey. Barnabas is the guy that's in Galatia helping Paul plant these churches. And what do we see of Barnabas? It says that, and even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. So you've got Peter who's very focal point center walking away. And then you've got Barnabas that I think is more of this slow, like, uh oh, there's a conflict here. I'm going to slowly slink back into the shadows where nobody really sees me because I don't want to get involved in the conflict. So I want to ask, what are the issues that we face in our churches today? What the Galatians were were struggling with was this whole concept of legalism. What the Jewish believers were saying is that it's Jesus and you have to follow this and this and this and this and this and this and this. But we don't still do that today or 
do, do we? Do we come up with things that we add to the Bible that aren't really there? See, what happens with legalism is it's usually this, this pressure from within the church to create this extra standard of holiness in creating rules that aren't really there. Uh, my favorite story of this, I had a friend of mine grew up and he was not allowed to ride his bike on the street on Sundays. Now I say the street because he could ride his bike on the driveway. And so I remember him telling me that he'd be riding in the driveway in that short little section as he's like turning right along the street. And he's like, oh, I'm on the street, but not really because I have to turn. And there's this just weird rule of you can't ride your bike on the street, but you can on the driveway. Where is that in the Bible? And why do we do these things? I've got another friend of mine in college that was wanting to get a group of men together and just like get together a group of guys. And he's like, we want to be so committed to prayer and the word. Like, this is going to be awesome. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good. Like, sign me up. Then he takes it that next step further and he says, we want this to be so committed that if people don't come, it's like sin. And I was like, I'm out. I don't know about you, but I struggle enough with the sins that are real. I don't need more sins for me to trip over that I'm going to struggle with as well. We could come up with examples of this all day long. But so you've got, you've got this, this one ditch of legalism and there's another ditch that we can fall into that's liberalism in theology. I'm not talking political liberalism, so don't go there. So stick with me on liberalism in theology. This pressure is usually to subtract things from the Bible that are there. The pressure for this one usually comes from outside of the church trying to say, no, for the church to be relevant, it has to be like this. It has to accept what culture is saying in this. This is the category of people that are usually the most offended when we say that Jesus is the only way. When Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, that statement is Jesus' statement, not our statement, and that statement will be confrontative to our culture. I remember in college, I don't know if you guys had these experiences, I went to the University of Iowa, which is not always a safe place for Christians. And I remember this interpretation of literature class where there was another believer in the class too. And so the, the teacher had this kind of goofy requirement where whatever we were doing, you had to be full into it. And so we're reading this, this book, we're reading through this stuff, and there comes a word that this person was uncomfortable saying because it was a swear word and she was not going to say this word. And the teacher ripped on her in front of the entire class saying, if you don't say this word, you're going to be in trouble. And she stood on her ground and did not say it. And what did I do? I was Barnabas. I, I just slunk in the background and I didn't stack up for her. I still regret that moment. And so it might be those really big, massive things of if you don't agree with my pet project or if the church doesn't begin to get on board with something like a sexuality issue that our culture is so hot on right now, then it's not really going to be relevant. Or it could be those smaller things where it's just those slop, slow pushes to try to push people off of the truth that we're going to see in that. So you've got, you've got these two ditches. You've got legalism, that which calls that which is not sin to be sin. And you've got liberalism, which says that that which is sin is not sin. But both of these are ditches that are not the gospel. I want to be really clear on that. But this is where a lot of us have a tendency to fall into as we're walking along the road of Christ. So, a question for you. Do you know the truth? Are you able to stand on the truth of the word of God and defend the truth when needed? 
for the men out there, especially it's Father's Day today, so I want to throw a challenge out. And this applies to all the ladies too, but in 1 Timothy 3, it talks about the qualifications for an overseer, an elder, and it says that we are supposed to be able to teach and defend the word. The only way to do that is by sticking in the word and having the word of God flush over our lives so that we can know God's truth to be able to teach it and defend it. And when there are conflicts within the church or around the church, which character are you? I know reading this, all of us want to stand up and be like, I'm Paul. People, I'm Peter way more than I'm ever Paul. Best case scenario, maybe I'm Barnabas, the guy that's just kind of slowly slinking back and not being in the center of the issue. And so Paul sees this issue of Peter and these Jewish disciples, these Jewish believers, not walking in step with the gospel. So what is his response? He confronts Peter because his theology is wrong. So how do we protect ourselves from walking out of the step with the gospel, out of step? Paul's response is he just preaches the gospel again. So if you continue with me in verses 15 and 16, he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. There is a lot in that one verse. So we're going to camp out on this one for a couple minutes here. So you heard justified, you heard works of the law, you heard Christ, and there's all these words that keep getting repeated and repeated and repeated. Now, there's this awesome structure that happens sometimes in the Bible, and if you were here through the story of God series, and if you remember the story, uh, this, this, the message that Matt gave on Leviticus, you might remember this concept. But what I want to walk you through here real quick is, it is we are not justified by works of the law, but we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone for all those who have believed in Jesus Christ alone, because it's not by the law, and in case you missed Paul's point, it's not by the law. So anytime you see this structure, pay attention to what's in the middle of it, because that's one of the things that the author is trying to point to. So for those who have believed. So let's talk about this for a second. What does it mean to believe in Jesus, to have that faith and have that belief in Jesus? Does this mean just that I know of Jesus? Is that what that belief is? It is a simple belief of, yeah, I don't know, I believe that Jesus lived. I believe that he walked on the earth. I believe that he was a good moral teacher. But I don't really think he was the son of God. Is that going to cut it? I would say no. Because if you look in James, James even says that you believe that God is one, you do well. Well, even the demons believe and they shudder. So simple belief, I would say, is not enough. There's more than just knowing of Jesus. So if we continue in John 6, it says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. The thought is continued in John 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So we see that there's a reaction for some of those who believe, because out of our heart, there's this flowing of ri- this river of flowing water that comes out. So there's a reaction to belief. And I want to contest that that was really God's plan all along. Even as Aaron was unpacking the sign of circumcision last week, that was God's plan. If you look back in Deuteronomy 30, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul that you may live. We see also in Psalm 51, as David is pouring out his life in a confession before the Lord, he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, which is works, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So from the beginning, God wanted your heart. And that's what we still see now. Paul in Romans 2 continues this whole idea of the heart. And he says that a Jew is one inwardly. So circumcision was this outward sign of people saying that I'm circumcised, therefore I'm one of God's people. But Paul is challenging that concept. He's saying, no, a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter of the law. So what then is this? What does it mean to believe? I would say it is a call to repentance. Repentance is to turn away from, to change your mind and surrender your soul. It literally means you are going this direction that is the wrong direction to go. You make a 180 degree turn and you go back the other way. Repent does not mean I'm going to repent of my sin and I'm going to continue to wallow in it. Repent is to turn and walk away from that. And in Romans 10, we see that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For from the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So we see that we're, we're justified here. And that, that was in the Galatians, if you remember as well, this Galatians 2 text, that we are justified by faith alone. One theologian puts it this way. He says that justification should not be confused with forgiveness, which is the fruit of justification, nor with atonement, which is Jesus dying on the cross in our place, which is the basis of justification. Rather, it is the favorable verdict of God, the righteous judge, that one who formerly stood condemned has now been granted a new status at the bar of divine justice. pastor friend of mine explained it to me this way. Justified means just if I'd never sinned. We are declared righteous before God. Luther put it this way. He said, a Christian is more flawed and sinful than you'd ever dare believe and yet more loved and accepted than you'd ever dare hope at the same moment. So let's not miss the point of what Jesus is saying here and what Paul is saying here. And if you're new to, if you've been at Stonebridge for a while, this is not going to be new to you. It is Jesus plus anything equals nothing. So it's the equivalent of me saying, I'm going to give you a million dollars times zero. Not so exciting anymore. But Jesus plus nothing, faith alone in Jesus alone, Jesus plus nothing is everything. So what then is our life supposed to look like on the other side of this belief? We saw in one of those passages that it said, out of the heart there's going to be a flowing river. So let's look, continue on. If you pick up in verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I'm going to take a really, really short pause on this and not develop it a ton. But effectively what he's saying here is it's just another way where he's saying, guys, it's not by the law. Because what he's talking about of rebuilding up, if I rebuild up the law and can't keep it, 
It's not Jesus' fault. I'm building up something that I could never follow anyways. So that's a really quick aside on that. But the next section is just beautiful, people. So continue in verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this is this beautiful picture of baptism. And if you've ever been here when we've done a baptism, I know there's a couple in the intro video, you've, you've probably heard the message of baptism is this outward expression of an inward transformation. And when we are, the reason we practice immersion baptism here is because we talk about when you are baptized into the water, when you're put into the water, you are baptized into Jesus' death. And when you're coming out of the water, you are being resurrected with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, Paul says, but it is Christ now who's living in me. Another theologian said it this way. He said, when a person trusts God, God identifies him or her with Christ, not only in the present and future, but also in the past. The believer did what Christ did. When Christ died, I died. When Christ arose from the grave, I arose to new life. My old self-centered life died when I died with Christ. His spirit-directed life began in me when I arose with Christ. Therefore, in this sense, the Christian's life is really the life of Christ. So what then? We're, we're given these two pictures. We have a life in death, and we have a life where Christ is living in us. And people, those two things should not look the same because it is incapable for those things to look the same. And it, talk, it says in here, the, the life that I now live in the flesh. And I was thinking through an illustration of how I could explain this. And so you guys have probably been sitting here for a little while wondering what these giant tubs of water are for. Not little tiny little like Lego man baptisms, don't worry. So my wife loves bats. And so when we were first married, I had no idea how to draw a bath well. I was not a bath guy, I'm a guy, come on. And so I was trying to think through, my wife loves baths, so I love my wife, so I'm going to try to figure out how to make her a nice bath. So I start to think through, what are the things that I think she would like? And so I, I, I pull this water into the tub, and I think, okay, let's put some flowers in there, try to make this look a little bit nicer. Got some candles, so let's try to like make some of this kind of cool. And then I think like, well, I don't know, like I like playing with toys, so maybe my wife's gonna like playing with toys too. So like I put a boat in there for her to be able to play around with. And even like a little like dolphin, like <laughs> cute. So she's got that to play with while she's in there. And then the culminating factor. So we had gotten these gifts when we were part of like all of our wedding gifts and stuff. And have you guys ever seen a bath bomb? some really fun YouTube videos on these things. But I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, this, this is going to be that thing that I'm going to add to the bath that's going to make this bath amazing. Like husband of the year, yes. So I go to put it in, I'm getting everything ready, and I am shocked that nothing happens. I'm actually a little angry. I was like, all of the anticipation of this and nothing happens? That's a chip. Come on. But what I didn't realize until after I pulled it out that it was actually shrink-wrapped But you see, isn't this how we treat our walk with Jesus so often? Our walk with God, we, we don't know how to do it, so we begin to think, okay, well, I'm going to try to like spice things up the best way that I can. 
I'm going to like put some stuff around it to make it look all nice. And then we add Jesus into our life as if he's an add-on instead of treating him like the only hope that we have for renewing, like renewed life. And so to, to combine that with this other idea of what it really is supposed to look like, when you drop a bath bomb into a bath, there's this effervescent nature that takes over everything in the bath and it is no longer even the water that you begin to see, but all it is is the effect that the bath bomb has on the water. There's no part of this that gets segmented off of I'm not going to let the bath bomb affect this part of the water. Every part of the water should be changed and that is how our walk with Jesus is supposed to be. When Jesus is in us, every part of our life has to begin to change, not because of us, not because we're trying to follow the law, but because Christ in us changes who we are. There's a beginning that happens of we can't even see us anymore because it's Christ. So our marriages should look different. The way that we parent should look different. The way that we drive begins to look different. The way that you work begins to look different. Your neighbors notice different things about you. Every part of your life is supposed to begin to change because of Jesus. Not the water. The water was already in there and it wasn't doing anything but being water. Just like us before Christ, we're not doing anything. We cannot change ourselves. The only hope that we have is that Christ now lives in us. And that beautiful hope that he is the one doing the work. It's the Holy Spirit in us that begins to change who we are. That is the picture of what Paul is saying here. Like my story, if I were to share it in more detail, oh man, this one's starting to work should have maybe checked to make sure there wasn't any holes in that one, but well, usually when you throw Jesus in, even if he's smaller, a little bit sneaks out. Then we'll just kind of call that part of it. I planned that one. <laughs> but guys, this is how I treated my life. I tried to treat Jesus like an add-on for so long. Where I went to church, I tried to do the right things. I tried to read my Bible or I tried to pray, which actually my excuse when my dad asked me my freshman year of college, are you reading the Bible? I would say, well, not as much as I'm supposed to, which really meant I wasn't. It was collecting dust on my desk. Maybe some of you guys can resonate with that, of trying to treat Jesus like this add-on instead of realizing that he's supposed to change everything about who we are. This is the picture of the gospel in our lives, people, that Jesus is living in us and he is the one doing the work now. The last verse, verse 21 it's just one more time, Paul hammering the point home. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He's just one more time again saying that, guys, it is not by the law. You can never be good enough on your own. The original sin was Adam and Eve eating a piece of fruit, and you think you can be good enough on your own? His standard is perfection. And the only way we can get that is Christ's perfection in us. So I just want to ask, what are you going to do with Jesus? Maybe this is your first time in church in a long time or this is your first time around and you've never really had the gospel message presented to you and you're sitting here hearing this for the first time. This message is for you. 
Maybe you've been in church for a while or around church for a while and you've been walking along the road and you're either in this road of liberalism or legalism and you're just walking along the ditch of the road of the faith in the gospel alone. People come up onto the road. There's room for everybody. Or maybe you've been a believer for a long time. You've been faithfully coming. You know that Jesus Christ is this and this is who you are. See, Paul preached the message of the gospel again to Galatians who were believers. So the message of the cross is not just a one-time thing. I was in third grade at a fire on a hill and I said the prayer once and just stamped good forever. It is a daily renewing of our minds and coming back to the cross and what Christ is doing in us. So we're going to continue in worship. We're going to continue to sing about God's amazing message. And as we do that, I want to to invite a couple of godly men and women up towards the front. And if this message is resonating in your heart and if you're feeling that knocking at your heart, if this is something that you have never heard or you've heard and just kind of forgotten about or just ignored for so long, may today be the day that you finally unwrap Jesus and have him in your life, not as an add-on, but as the one with the only power to change who you are. So as we're singing this last song, I'm going to have the worship team come back up. If you are feeling this calling on your life, I invite you, come on up. Grab me, grab Matt, grab Pastor Tom, or any of the other elders or anybody that's going to be up here. And just confess and begin to cry out because that is the only hope that we really have is Jesus living in us.